0: Thanks, Jim. So this sermon is a tough one. I'm just going to tell you that right up front. Probably not for you, but it turned out to be that way for me. It actually, as I was studying and looking through this passage in Mark, we're continuing in Mark, the Servant King. If you want to get your Bibles out, either the, the in the chairs in front of you or your own Bible, you can turn to the first chapter of Mark. I think it's page 709 in those uh, pew Bibles. But As I got in there, I found things that were different than what I expected, and actually it caused me to ask some pretty hard questions of myself. Um, So if I'm preaching at me and you're free to go, that's good. I'm happy for you, but we'll see. Maybe it gets at you as well. Um, Here's the big question, the big thing today. Do we allow our faithfulness in life and our faithfulness to God to frustrate our faith in God. Let me unpack that a little bit. I'm going to use this as an illustration. It won't be the prime discussion today, but this is part of it that actually drummed it up for me. Are you a racist? I mean, it's an interesting question, isn't it? We have a seminar, a day-long seminar at the seminary, which is appropriate, on this Thursday that is all concerning racism. And people from a number of different ethnic backgrounds, scenarios, are going to come to the seminary and talk through some issues with us. It drummed up several questions for me, more than I thought that I had. First of all, I have to admit this, I had to ask myself the question, do I even know what a racist is? I'm the worst guy to ask. I'm a mid-50s, white, male American who lives in an affluent community. I'm the worst guy to ask. What do I know? Then I had to go, okay, if there's distinctives between people groups and we want to salvage those and actually celebrate those distinctives and there's variations, how do we do that without being racist? How do we do that? How do we even navigate that? In this community where I am part of the vast majority, how can I navigate the concept of ministry to people of other people groups? We've tried. I don't think we've done very well. And I had here's the biggest question I has had to ask. Am I a bigot? Am I bigoted? Or do I just not have enough information? Am I... Does my well-intendedness cover some kind of bigotry? Now, the interesting thing is here, we're going to look at several chapters from Mark. We're going to skim along over the top and hit a couple of camps in the middle, uh, one in the beginning of chapter 2 and one at the beginning of chapter 3. And we're going to find out that actually this is a big issue. But the issue is not so much related, related to race as Jesus came, because he was a Jew, they were Jews. But the really big issue was bigotry based on theology. Based on faith systems. Based on priorities. Based on how things are supposed to work between us and God. And that's the discussion. Mark 1. Let's go. We're going to look at a few things here. Again, I'm going to skim and then land and skim and land. But I do want you to hear this very core beginning. It's a synopsis of Jesus' message. Verse 14, Jesus went into all Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, Mark 1, 15. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Hang on to that phrase. That's a core message. He walks along. He starts calling people to join him. He ends up with his core followership actually being from the north, a bunch of Yankees that were, you know, several miles to the north from where he'll do a lot of his ministry in the south later. But let's watch what he does here. The title in my section is of verse 21. Jesus drives out an evil spirit. We see he comes along. He's in the synagogue. It's Sabbath. They're worshiping a man with an evil spirit, Presents himself in the synagogue. And Jesus shows his authority over the evil spirit by telling him to shut up and get out, in effect, in the synagogue, in the worship. No response yet, but an interesting process. Jesus then, look at how the crowds respond to this. They're amazed, verse 27. What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits? Who is this guy? The next section, verse 29, is is titled, Jesus Heals Many. And the main focus here is on Peter's mother-in-law. Who now is shown to have a disease, Jesus goes in, helps remove the fever. There's no discussion of an evil spirit now, but just of disease that Jesus deals with. Something is building here. Mark is building a case. As this develops. Next, this, the title says Jesus prays in a solitary pr- place, verse 35. The focus here is not so much on the prayer, although that is important. The focus is on the building sense of popularity that's happening in Jesus' ministry. Everywhere he goes now, everybody's heard about him to the point that Simon says, hey, what are you doing up here praying? Everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, let's go somebody else. This is overwhelming right now. The people are, are getting this. The next title is this, A Man with Leprosy, verse 40. This is interesting how this plays out. Man comes to him. Look at 41, filled with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And says to him, look, I care enough about you. I'm going to take the risk. The chance that that a rabbi would touch a leprous man is just, you got to be kidding me. He would never do this. And he doesn't even say to him, may the leprosy go away. He says, be clean. Now Jesus has shown his authority over evil spirits, over sickness. And now he comes along and says, I have authority over the ceremonial system that we're all living in. He declares him sanctified, holy, clean. Fascinating. Move along. The next section is titled, we're going to camp here a little bit, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. And this is the beginning of chapter one. A few days later, Jesus entered Capernaum. The people heard that he had come home, not his home where he grew up, but his home where his home base was in Capernaum, probably Andrew's house. So many there were gathered that there was no place to get into this house in which he's preaching. And he preached the word to them. Don't ever forget that there's two things going on. Jesus is is showing social justice, care, and concern. At the same time, he is preaching the truth of the good news. Repent and believe. There's side-by-side things in Jesus' ministry. Now, there's some people that come to him, they're bringing a guy carrying him, a paralytic. And since they couldn't get into the house because of the crowd, they dig a hole in the roof. Now, imagine this. He's literally inside teaching and preaching, the, the main level is usually just for the animals, but it was probably full of people at this point in time. The second level is where Jesus is probably teaching. Then there's a flat roof up on top. They go up on the top and start literally hacking into the roof. Can you imagine this? Stuff falling on Jesus' head and everything that's going on. But look what Jesus focuses on. He doesn't call them out for tearing up the roof. As they lower the man through, Jesus saw their faith. This is another critical piece that is building, is that as we're seeing these engagements between Jesus and people, the issue of faith is always coming up. This is part of the engagement as we're moving along. And then what he says, look what he says, excuse me, son, your sins are forgiven. Is that what you expected him to say? Guy's paralyzed on a mat and he says your sins, he gives him absolution. Do you think that's what he wanted? Do you think that's even the issue? Well, interestingly, now Jesus has shown he has authority over evil spirits, over sickness itself, over the ceremonial system, and now he says, I have authority even to forgive sin. Well, look what the response is here. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, what in this world is this guy saying? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus perceives this. You know it's going to proceed from there. Here is an illustration of faithful people, teachers of the law, people who are instructed. They're there listening to the teaching, but their faithfulness frustrates or gets in the way of their own faith. He talks about forgiving sins, and they're like, who does this guy think he is? So it moves on, and Jesus says, Well, I could have said just about anything but verse 10, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turned to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the guy gets up and walks out. Now, what would you have done at that point? If you were one of those teachers who was thinking in your mind, This guy doesn't get it. Who does he think he is? He can't forgive sins. Would you find yourself asking some questions? I hope so. But it's interesting how this plays out. Not a lot of comments about the teachers of the law here, but it says in verse 12, this amazed everybody. They praise God, and they're like, we've never seen anything like this. Then he goes out, and he's he's calling some people, large crowds. He gathers Levi, Matthew, the tax collector, says, follow me. Matthew puts together a big party, and he invites his friends. His friends are not... The good guys, his friends, are sinners, tax collectors, the scum of the earth, if you will. And Jesus goes with his disciples and has dinner with these guys. And look what happens, verse 16. When the teachers of the law, probably on the outside, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Does that sound familiar all the way back to the beginning? My job is not here to clean things up. Move on. Jesus' question about fasting. He uses three different analogies. He says, Would you sit around and fast? while the bridegroom and the bride are there in their party? That doesn't make sense. Then he says, would you take fresh cloth and put it on an old worn-out garment? You know it'll just tear. Or would you pour fresh new wine into old worn-out wineskins because you know they'll just break and it'll ruin everything. What's his point? His point is, I didn't come here to talk the Pharisees and the system into cleaning up their acts. I came here to bring something new. Now, when you heard that, how would you have responded? I've asked myself, how would I respond to that? I probably would have started to be coming up with some kind of a rebuttal in my mind as to why that's a bad idea. We move on. Verse 23, the title is Lord of the Sabbath. Now his disciples are walking through the fields. They're gathering grain. The Pharisees say, why are your disciples doing work on the Sabbath? Jesus says, don't you remember what happened with David and his men when they went into the tabernacle and ate the bread? They didn't have a right to that, but the Sabbath... Remember this line? It's so amazing. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Do you see what he just did there? He takes one of their highest principles, and he says, I actually have authority over this as well. Not just the little ceremonial pieces, but the Sabbath." Now, three one we we're going to camp here a little bit too. Another time he went into the synagogue. It's a Sabbath day. They're in for worship. They're gathered together. And a man with a shriveled hand came in there. And you know what? You can tell the teachers of the law and the Pharisees see this one coming. <laughs> because they say to themselves, they're looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this guy on the Sabbath. Do you get the irony of what's happening here? Have you ever done this? Probably not. It's probably only me. They're sitting in a worship service on the Sabbath, their holy day, in a worship context. A man is in great need, and they start figuring out ways that they know what Jesus is going to do because now they have a pattern And they start figuring out ways to say, we can trap this guy because he's going to heal him on the Sabbath. They completely miss the point. They completely miss the miracle, the grace of God. They miss it. So Jesus calls the guy out and says, stand up right here in front of everybody in the middle and ask the question, which is lawful to do, good or evil on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill Now they realize, uh (laughs) uh-oh, if we answer this, there's no good answer to this question. And Jesus says, now watch this. He looked around at them in anger. Can you imagine this? He's probably in the middle of the room, and he's literally looking around and making eye contact with them. He's not being gracious. He is, as it says, angry, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. This is the same kind of emotions we heard about several weeks ago when we talked about Lazarus. Jesus is furious because I miss it. Because they had allowed their faithfulness to frustrate their faith. They missed it. And, of course, he says, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it, and then look what happens. Instead of the guys getting the lesson, the Pharisees then start to plot with the Herodians, their bitter enemies, as to how they can get rid of Jesus. This is the setup. This is the climax of his ministry in Galilee. This is the end of the story in the north. And now he's going to go quite a way south, and they're going to move south. Jerusalem in that area is... 50 to 75 miles in that range from that northern area north of Samaria. That's as far from here to Morrison or from here to Eagle if you were traveling. They don't have as many vertical feet, but they had a lot. There's a lot of distance there. So he doesn't bring these Pharisees and the teachers of the law with him to the south, but I promise you the word had spread. And this is the setup for the next stage. Let's make a couple of observations in here. Again, I'm talking to myself. First of all, there's two primary things going on. There's a building sense of authority. Did you hear all those things that Jesus declared authority over all the way through? I mean, this is a, Mark is building a case for his growing authority. And side by side with that, the constant response of the average people to say, what the heck is going on? Who is this guy? We're amazed. Nobody's ever done anything like this. Authority and popularity is building at the same time building, is controversy and conflict with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, I had to ask myself when I'm looking at this passage, what in the world did he do wrong? (laughs) How did he make them so mad? And the truth is, when I'm honest with myself, I have to say it was their stumbling block. I don't see any way that he left them out of the equation. They had every opportunity, but they missed it. And he's accomplishing this in in a baffling way, this servant king. We're used to that phrase because it's a Christianese phrase. But do you realize how oxymoronic that is? It almost makes no more sense than postal service. You know, those two words can't go next to each other. Military intelligence, you can't put those two words together. Servant king don't fit together. So they're saying, wait, he has this deep sense of compassion. He's touching lepers. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. What's his deal on that? That would be okay if he was just a social justice guy, but he also thinks he's a teacher of the law. And he's bringing the good news. He's opening and engaging the kingdom of God. He's making claims that only the Messiah king can make. And they're baffled. I get baffled. I totally get baffled. What I have trouble with is that, and this thing happens inside of me, where when I'm baffled, I decide there must be something wrong with that guy, not me. He's moving along. They decided, this is the truth, their identity as the chosen people of God was far more important to them than their mission, which was to be outreach to the whole world, everyone. They, in their faithfulness to their identity, they frustrated their own faith in God and the mission of God that was at work. It was right in front of them. And you know what the real problem was? I had to stop and think about this. So, going back through the race discussion and stuff, what's the real problem? Is it that I really don't? What is the issue? The real issue is I mistakenly believe that I don't have anything to be repentant for. What do I need to repent from? I'm one of the good guys, I'm bringing the truth. I'm part of a church that is affecting something in our community and we are. We are teaching the law. We are on God's side. What do I need? In fact, I don't need to repent. All of those guys need to repent. That's the problem. Where the repenting. Remember Jesus message all the way back at the beginning, repent and believe. In Peter's first epistle, you remember that Mark's gospel are the memoirs of Peter. So we're trying to pull in some things from a little bit later writing that Peter did to the churches. He says this, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live faithfully. That's good. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Okay, so far. Submit yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Part of the problem was Jesus didn't show any authority over the Romans. And that's what they expected. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for your evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. That's the culture. That's how we avoid letting our faithfulness frustrate our own faith. Uh, Last Friday when I was on my way from classes, I stopped in to see... Jude Del Gero, who is uh, one of the leaders of the music groups that come up, Confluence, that come up here in the summertime. And we stop and have coffee every now and then. As I walk into the kitchen area, things are just going crazy. There's food going all over the place, and people are showing up. I walk in, and literally they had had someone, an elderly lady, who lived just a few houses down from their building, who had died of cancer the day before. She was in great suffering. And they went over to the house. The people don't come, and they're not a part of Jude's church ministry. But they went over and said, Do you have a place to feed people, to have an opportunity for people? And they didn't. And so Jude literally, last minute, arranges with his people, gets people to rally together. They get food from all over the place. They set up their building. We're setting up tables. And he says to me, well, (laughs) good to see you. Go grab a table. (laughs) So all I did for two and a half hours is walk around, carry drinks and food to people, pick up trash off of tables, find out how people were related to the woman who was lost, and just hear the story after story of people. And there's people all over the place. There's, there's 25 guys across the street by the, the uh, uh, garage at the house across the street, standing out there smoking pot, drinking so heavily that they're just totally causing a ruckus. This is not my crowd. Okay? This is not my scene. But I remember standing there thinking, isn't this ironic that this is happening this week? Jesus said it's not the well who need a doctor, right? Had I walked around, first of all, had I said, oh, it seems that you're too busy for me, brother. That would have been pretty easy for me to do, by the way. He probably wouldn't have even been offended. It also would have been pretty easy for me to say, I'm not really very comfortable because I don't know any of these guys, and this isn't my scene, Right? Where do we allow our faithfulness to God, our lifestyle, our accurate doctrines, our everything else to frustrate? What's your response when you think about other churches even in this own community? How do you respond? Or in your community if you're from somewhere else. When you hear about Agape or RMBC or the Catholic parish or whatever, do you think, oh, man, those guys, do you feel like we need to rescue them from that church? Is that our job? What if instead, what if we were the kind of people that literally said, with the truth that we speak and living into the kingdom, we come with compassion, we come with service, We come with the authority that Jesus had and let Jesus sort it out. What if we did that? Again, none of you needed to hear this. I did. But this is the setup for the ministry. As the conflict builds, the authority builds, the sense of of celebration because, oh my goodness, this guy's bringing, this might be the Messiah. And those two things live in tension, and it's the setup for our next several conversations. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word to us. Thank you for um, the truths. It's so great that we can hear uh, the, the discussion. And for us, people who are typically church-attending people, we would need to put ourselves in the camp of the Pharisees. We are like them. We think like them. We behave like them. And um, help us, save us from our own selves. Help us to not get in our own way with our faithfulness that can frustrate the faith that you've given us and that you want to build inside of us. And um, we worship you. We celebrate you. We continue today in Jesus' name. Amen.